Good morning, everyone. Yes, my name is Madeline, and I'll be reading this morning from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles, on your phones, or on the screen behind me. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Today, at the beginning, I want you to think of the person in this world that is closest to you, that you are closest to. Uh, that could be your husband or your wife, um, could be a, a really dear friend, it could be a family member who you've had a lot to do with, just someone in your life who is really, really important. Have you got that person in your head? Don't tell me, I'm not going to ask. But I'm going to check in a few times today as we go along with this passage, just to say, hey, think about that person. And then I want you to think about um, those of us here in our So the people around you, who you do life with on a Sunday, maybe midweek as well. Did you have our church in your head and do you have a person in your head? No, I don't think you agree, yes. We'll check in with those two different spheres of relationships throughout today's talk. I want it to be very helpful and practical, and I'm going to tell you what to think about as we unpack the passage. So in Philippians 1.27, we are told to live worthy of the gospel. Then a command hands over the rest of the letter, and today that means that we adopt the same mindset of Jesus in our relationship with each other. Now there are two commands found in these 11 verses. They are not, they are not in the phrase, be humble. It is not in the phrase, do nothing out of selfish ambition. The two commands, the imperative land in verse 2, where Paul says, complete my joy. And then in verse 5, have the same mindset of Jesus. Which means these commands are not, uh, sorry, these commands are grounded in the character and nature of God as you look to the cross more and more. What we need is a greater understanding of the incarnation, the cross of Jesus and the glorification. Because it's when I see the character and nature of God, I compare our love and joy and humility to serve others. 
to so behave and act with the mind of Christ. So what does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? Well, today it means we have the mind of Jesus in our relationships. And you've got those, the person and the people in your head, I'm sure. So let's look at what it means to have the mind of Christ in our relationships. We start with the first four verses. Uh, there are there are four if statements in verse one. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if there's any comfort from His love, if any common sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Now the answer, of course, to those if statements is yes. Yes, you do have those things, right? And then Paul says, then, which leads to the imperative complete. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. You'll also see that being in Christ, or with Christ, shows us how this all takes place. Because in verse 1 he says, because we are with Christ, and in verse 5, as Christ. The point here is that our union with Jesus is means we're now joined to one organism, that is Jesus. We're joined to him. We're part of an interconnected living thing, which is Jesus. And because we're joined to Jesus, united with him, we now have the mind of Jesus flowing through us and into us. And it says, if there is any comfort and love and compassion and encouragement from Jesus to you because you belong to him, then there should be. There is. That's fine. But it's not just for our benefit. It's for the health of the entire community or body of our relationships. You can illustrate it like this. You can see that we are in Christ, we are with Christ. That's the idea. And all the benefits we have from belonging to Jesus are to make the community healthy. Which is why Paul says in verse 2, Philippians, Trinity Church Golden Grove, complete my joy by being the same mind. Now complete my joy as a command sounds really strange. Um, is Paul manipulating? You know, if you love me, you'll do this. Is, is, he, is, he, is he saying that? Is that the sense? You know, if, if you really are a Christian, you will make me happy sort of thing. Well, no, actually. Um, it's simply that we find joy when things grow, don't we? You have a birthday, and we celebrate that. You celebrate progress, like getting an A or mastering a new skill. You finish the spreadsheet at work, and it looks wonderful, and your budget's balanced, and the design and concept is finished, and your boss is happy. You know, you, we celebrate those things. We celebrate progress and and and. Um, Edward, my son, got graded at Taekwondo, and we celebrated that he got his yellow belt yesterday, you know? We celebrate when there are wins with others. Victory drinks, a huddle, a song. It's human nature to find joy in celebrating when things grow, isn't it? And as we see God's people grow, there is great cause for celebration too, and that is what Paul is saying. Because there's no place for selfish ambition or factions or self-interest. He says, complete my joy by... And then he describes it for us. What does it look like to celebrate the wins in the Christian life as a community? Well, we're like-minded, we have the same love, we're one in spirit. And then he says in verse uh, 3 and 4, here's two things to avoid if you want to celebrate the joy in the faith. Don't do anything selfishly and don't look to your own interests. This week I was out with Charlotte and we walked around the plaza and went to a shop and in the shop, there was a whole lot of stuff, as you have in shops. And on one side of the shop, there was a greeting card that said, Be kind, and it had lovely, um, lovely fancy writing on it. Be kind. And then on the other side of the shop, I took a photo of what I found, and it said this, It's a vibe, I'm unsubscribing from your drama. Vanilla caramel scented candle. 
And I thought at that moment, this is a wonderful picture of realizing, first of all, how strange it is to actually live for Jesus. Because our culture does not come from a place that says, I'll value you above myself. Maybe I'll value you the same as myself, but certainly not above, right? Of course, thinking the way Paul describes in Philippians 2 is only possible as you look to Jesus and are united to him. That's the point. The cards, the slogans, the candles probably don't have the cross as their supreme example of behavior when the you know, marketing guys put it together. But as people in Christ, we do seek the unity and the health of the body. I mean, it would be horrible if the legs of your body wanted to go opposite directions and some of you have stories when that was the case, maybe skiing or something. It should be very painful if your eyes wanted to look forward and back at the same time. It would not work, you see. The point here is that we are incorporated into something much bigger and larger than ourselves, and that is the body of Christ. And our relationships with each other are in Christ as well, which means a self-seeking Luke is incompatible with this new body that we've been given as one. But instead of that, the attitude of Jesus is now what begins to define me and you and our relationships with each other. Which means, one of the key things Paul says here is humility and the interest of others are now key. But what is humility? Well, I'll tell you what humility is not. Humility is not thinking of yourself less. Pride loves to be self-magnified even when you serve others and make yourself out to be small. You can do that from a very prideful place. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. I have met people that take great pride in being downcast in their life. In contrast to that, biblical humility is to think of yourself in Christ. A preacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones in the um, in the 70s was asked, how can I be humble, Mr. Preacher Guy? And he said, it, the man that asked me seemed to think I had a remedy. Do this and you'll be humble. And I said, I actually have no method or technique to be humble. There's only one way to be humble, and that's to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. That is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look to him, you realize who he is and what he has done, and you are humbled. Which is exactly what Paul illustrates now for us. Look to Jesus, his incarnation, and his glorification, and you will be humbled, and from that position, you adopt the mind of Christ. Look what he says in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, as Christ Jesus. His summary so far is that the great, great theme Paul is weaving through in these verses is that because of our union with Jesus and his own selfless example of love and generosity, by putting the needs of others above his own. Paul says, hey team, complete my joy. Adopt the mindset of Jesus in your relationships with one another because Jesus gives you a whole new mind, a mind built for relationships with those around you. Have you got those people in your mind again? That person, a church community, just checking in. Make sure you do. Because if you're in Christ, and if you want to have any hope of thinking of others instead of yourself as first preference, if I'm really going to put you first, I need Jesus to change me. Which is why the imperative again rests on mindset. And so to show us the mind of Christ, Paul then walks 
into some of the most dense and rich and beautiful Christology in the entire Bible. And this is important because the imperative is grounded in what God has done for us in Christ. But before we get there, there are three things that we must keep in mind before we look at verse 6 to 11. Firstly, Paul is writing pastorally. He's encouraging the church to be selfless by using the supreme example of selflessness, which is the incarnation in the cross. Which means this should be immensely practical. And a good understanding of God's character and nature is exactly what theology should make us have. If your knowledge of God does not push you to be other people centered for the glory of God, then you've missed the purpose of why Jesus came down to earth. So Paul is writing pastorally. Keep that in mind. Secondly, there is more that can be said and must be said about the nature of Jesus than just these few verses. These verses use the incarnation and the deity of Jesus to push us to be humble and other people-centered. Colossians 1 talks about similar things to explain our redemption and our adoption to God's family. John chapter 1 adds to that conversation by talking about how God is relatable and communicating to us through Jesus. And when you see the context that each one's written into, thinking richly of Jesus becomes a motivation towards godliness in the practical sense. So there's more that can be said, and there's much more that has been said. Finally, I have no way to illustrate the Trinity for you. It's actually really hard to describe the Trinity, and even if you can describe the Trinity well, the terminology and the relationship of how a triune God works is really tricky. I've got no concrete example. That God is Trinity is well attested from the Bible, but you want to put it together in a neat package for us to walk away and go, wow, Luke explained the Trinity. It's not going to happen today. I'm very sorry. But I do want to pull out two um, dangers that analogies about the Trinity have, because I think too often they don't help us describe the Trinity. We actually think we get God. And there are two categories or two errors which I want to point out. The first is that if we think of God as an egg or the apple, the clover, the sun, the water, those three things that can be one, we actually make God to be what we call tritheistic. So if you take the egg, you have a shell, the white, and the yolk. Tritheism says, well, they're all three separate things, right? The egg is never, the shell is never the yolk. The white is never the shell. But that's not how the Trinity works. So, so we actually use creation to help us not think well of God in that way. And I want to avoid that. The other error is modalism. That's that God has three parts and he just acts in a certain way depending on how he wants to. So God says, oh, I want to, in the gospels, the son is magnified. Therefore, I'm operating as the son and the father and the Holy Spirit are not around. Um, that's not the case either. God does not operate in modes. The math formula, one plus one plus one, or the emotions, the will, the intellect, all fall into that trap as well. And they're helpful as they can be to think of God in created terms, uh, in that sense. They actually don't help us think of the Trinity. So I just want to not mention them and just mention the dan- recognize the danger of that. So the helpful way, which is not concrete at all, and it's, it's the most helpful, is to say God is one being, three persons. Three persons, one being. It's not creative. But it pushes us to make sure. When I think of Jesus, the Spirit and the Father are still there in my head. When I think of the Spirit, the Father and the Son are still there as well. So let's keep that in our minds as we look at Jesus now. 
So we're going to summarize 6 to 11 in the two movements of Jesus to show the mind of Christ. The first one is that Jesus made himself low in verse 6 to 8 and so that God would lift him high in verse 7 to 11. Jesus made himself low so that God would lift him high. It says, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God to be used to his own advantage. Nature of God, it means form or shape, which means Jesus has always been in the appearance of God. That means before Mary gave birth to him, he was the second member of the Trinity, but he had no human body. Jesus did not become God at the incarnation. Rather, he has always been in the Godhead. Sometimes the second member of the Trinity would make an incursion into our world, like in the Old Testament and some of the references to angel of the Lord. But it was temporary. But his status is always that of God which means he has quite impressive credentials and privileges to put on his job description. I'm becoming incarnate. What, 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 what's the credentials behind that? You know, being equal with God. But the nature of God is not about getting. The nature of God is something else, and Jesus helpfully clarifies it for us in Mark 10.45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The greatest example of humility is that for all the status Jesus had and his position as part of the triune God, he willingly became a servant of his own creation. And that's what it means to adopt the mind of Jesus in your relationships with others. And so what we see what the pre-incarnate Jesus did not do was hold on to his status and position as God. Then in verse 7 we see what he did do, right? Rather... He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus literally emptied himself to serve others. Not emptying himself of his deity, but of his position. Because he was made in human likeness. Body of a man, the dwelling place of God. And it says too that he made himself. While God said to Adam in the book of Genesis, let us make... The second member of the Godhead says, I will be made into. The one who made Adam now takes on Adam's flesh. It does not also mean that God came down to somewhere where he didn't occupy. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere always. Rather, he comes down by adding humanity to his deity. He establishes a relationship in which his character as God is evident in a new relatable way through the body of Jesus. Which means, at this point, God values the body really highly, perhaps more than what you do. After all, he put one on. And then in the resurrection of Jesus, he keeps the body on and he's never going to take the body off. And some of us have had very dehumanizing experiences in and with our bodies. But the incarnation and resurrection says because Jesus stepped into one and was broken in his body, our bodies can now be restored. Because it's the body of Jesus where his wounds give meaning significant to us. We hide our unworthiness in his wounds. His scars count, not mine. We find safety and redemption in through the body of Jesus. They're restored by belonging to him. Because Jesus never took one off either, remember. Which means in the flow of Philippians 2 now, we have a good definition of, Jesus, of who Jesus is, and what he's done with his status. And then in verse 8, we see what he accomplished. 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he comes low to achieve the purpose of God in his body, that's humiliation. He's slandered, he's vilified, he's brutalized, he's a victim, he knows pain, the full brokenness of a world, the effects of sin, because he literally becomes sin. And he became obedient through that to the point of death. Which means his suffering is not for his own sin or evil, rather through being obedient to God and becoming like us and dying as one of us, while himself God, he was innocent, but took upon our unrighteousness to make us righteous. Which is theologically just beautiful, because the Christian story now has a place for suffering. Where there is pain and grief and anger and frustration in this life, we can know the God who willingly made himself into human form and humbled himself to death on a cross. And that matters because while God explains the broken world we live in, we don't just live in facts. It's why so much of the Bible is about how to navigate all the pain and suffering while leaning into God as it happens. We have the explanation at the beginning. We see where it's going to a good ending. And on the way, God just doesn't keep telling us facts. We see the story of what it's like to live and grieve and lament with our good, kind God every step of the way. Knowing, as verse 9 says in Philippians 2, there's a great future coming because our best life is not here and now, which is Paul's next point. Jesus comes, he intervenes, he holds a future hope to us in which he'll rule and reign and there will be no more humiliation or suffering, only glorification of God, the Father through the Son. Because Jesus is now exalted. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's the conclusion of the incarnation, the humiliation of Jesus, raised to the loftiest heights, given the name above all names. And there's songs that you may have sung that talks about Jesus, the name above all names, isn't there? Have you ever wondered what that means? What does it mean to sing in the name of Jesus? Well, the name above all names is the name Yahweh. Jesus takes the name God, which means Jesus is Yahweh God in this instance. Jesus is God. He is Lord. And for a city like Philippi, the Philippians who were reading this, they've been told their whole life, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the one that will save you. You need to be aligned to him. But it turns out that Caesar's not sitting in the highest place. Jesus is. And for a city like Adelaide, when we're told that we're the hero of our story, it turns out there's another hero we need, and it's the exalted Jesus, not the exalted self. So just checking in those names again. Have you got that person in your head still in our church family? Because Paul's point here is not to be self-seeking. We often make a name for ourselves. We often say it's all about Jesus when really it's actually all about me and how I look and my reputation. But humility is to look to the cross and realize the name that counts isn't mine but his. And that's actually really comforting. The rule of Jesus over all things is our great hope. This rule of God, the mind of Christ, it can happen to each of us here and now as we bend our knee to him. And that's the comfort. But there's a warning here too, and it's a bit pointy. You notice it doesn't say every knee that loves Jesus will bend. It just says every knee and every tongue. 
as Yahweh, Jesus is the righteous judge and we should not, and should we not, willingly bow to him with joy and delight. One day you will bow to him because the judgment of God is before us. And it's here when every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, God is given the glory. And that's the end result of Jesus' exaltation. And so too, that should be the goal of our life, the glory of God. And so too, that should flavor our relationships with the, relationships with the mind of Christ. Which means, if we were to wrap it up in the next minute, if God has been humble, how can we be proud? What does it mean in your relationship with that one person whom you love to bits or is so close to you, the family member or a friend, what does it mean to adopt the mind of Christ in that relationship, as we've seen in Philippians 2? What does it mean to adopt the mind of Christ with those sitting next to you in this room, with those that aren't here today because they're unwell or not able to make it? What does it mean to adopt the mind of Christ there? Is God pressing on you today the need to joyfully Joyfully adopt the mind of Christ, which is a life lived by putting others' needs above your own for the glory of God the Father. Because it all comes back to Philippians 1.27. Let's live worthy of the gospel. And that means today we adopt the mind of Jesus in our relationships. Because it's actually really joyful. So let's complete our joy and have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you sent your son Jesus as the supreme example of humility and self-sacrifice as our saviour and redeemer and lord who was made sin to forgive, restore and redeem us and we're thrilled to bits that that is what our story is now by your grace, that we love you. But Father, we struggle at times in our relationships to put the to put on the mind of Christ to see the joy in doing that. And I pray that as we sing and reflect now on you, you would just press on us your grace and your kindness and the need to put others above ourselves because that's what you've done for us. We thank you that we can't earn your love. We thank you that your love does make us lovely and wonderful. And we thank you that Jesus is ruling and reigning and all glory goes back to you, Father. So Jesus, we love you and we want to praise and honour you as individuals and as a church. May you be given the glory. Amen.